Hello, health scientists, and thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Hugh Gilmore. Hugh is a BASIS-accredited sports psychologist who spent the last six years working with Olympians and Paralympians within GB athletics and GB weightlifting. He also has a load of experience working within the GAA and Netball Northern Ireland. Um, I've spoken about psychology with a few people on this podcast, and that's because its use is becoming much more common in health sciences like nutrition and exercise. But is the growth in the use of psychology really as good as we think? Um, as you'll pick up quite quickly in this episode, Hugh is a smart cookie, and it was through conversations with him that I began to think about the possible negative side effects of psychology. Are there times when we should reconsider techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy or goal setting or mindfulness? Like Hugh mentions in this episode, strong medicine can also be strong poison, and we can't assume that all psychological techniques are benign. I really hope you enjoy this episode and get a lot out of it because I know I've learned a huge amount from you. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share and spread news of the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think might be interested in this podcast, either a coach or someone interested in psychology, please let them know about it and maybe it can be of some use to them. So on to this conversation with you. Let's talk science. Good evening to you, sir. How are you doing? Not too bad, Richie. How are you saying for yourself? I am very, very good. I must say, you're looking very dapper tonight. I did get washed for this podcast, so I just wanted to put, it, put across a good show, you know? <laughs> uh, and I can tell you, we all appreciate your personal hygiene. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> How's things for you? No. Pardon? How's things for you? Things are good. I didn't even get a chance. We were, we were speaking before this started. Um, I didn't even get a chance to, to tell you. Because I, I told you the night before that I had been, had a crazy week. It has been a crazy week. And I'll tell you after the podcast why it's been a crazy week. But uh, let's just say um, COVID is making things a little bit crazier than it should be. Um, but we'll try and forget about that and think happy thoughts right now. Um, so, Hugh, just for anybody who, who might not be familiar with you or you know ha- hasn't learned about you yet, can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, and what you currently do now? So I am a basics accredited sport and exercise scientist uh, and an Irish Institute of Sport accredited uh, sports psychologist. And I'm working towards the BPS accreditation uh, at the moment. Uh, I work with UK Athletics, so British Athletics, um, a sports site for them across their world-class program and their pathway. And I also work with British weightlifting for the last five years with their Olympic and Paralympic squads. And... I'm co-host of the 80% Mandel podcast with Pete Olusoga. So I have a couple of things on the go, but that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, I haven't always done sports psychology. Um, I've done many other things as well. So, yeah, it's a long journey to get there. Uh, I think a lot of us go through that, that long journey to find out what we uh, what we want to actually do and find something that we actually enjoy in life. But um uh, I think it would be safe enough to assume that you, you kind of have found a little bit of what your calling actually is. Would that be right? 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it a calling, but I definitely enjoy it. It's it's work. Um, I think it's the most rewarding job I've done um, in terms of actually making a difference to people. Um, although, like, actually, I've done other rewarding jobs. I used to be a hurling development manager uh, in Monaghan, believe it or not. I used to work for the GAA, which was uh, a different uh, different thing altogether from what I do now. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a decent role to play, uh, working with Olympians and Paralympians. And you're so modest about it as well, just working with Olymp- Olympians and Paralympians, like it's you know any old thing. How 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 did you get into psychology in the first place? How what was the the kind of the 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 process that that got you into it and kind of got you to where you are now? So uh, I originally did sports science a degree in that, um, and then got into coach development and then a bit of coaching and S and C stuff on the side. But I always liked psychology because of what I learned from it from my undergraduate degree and just the power of it. And there was a couple of applied experiments we had done in the classroom where I was picked out as a volunteer. And because of the instructions that I was given and the goals that were set for me, I basically half-assed um, doing sit-ups in front of the class while the other boys had uh, been given uh, higher targets than me and they basically bust themselves. So because I was given a piece of paper that said do 30, um, the other two lads were told do their best and do 60 in a minute, 60 sit-ups. I did my 30 and stopped and then looked at these two other lads basting it in front of the whole class and thought, like, I stopped because I was told to do this number. And it just left with me this stain of that lecture controlled my mind and essentially got me to underperform in front of everybody in the class because they gave me a lower number. And that just stuck with me as how powerful psychology can be. So basically there is this deep-rooted trauma from your past that brought you into psychology. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, you could say that. But I think it's like, it's it's the big thing that makes all the difference. It's the thing people tell stories about when you look at people who are sporting greats. Like, they don't talk about the size of their quadriceps. They don't talk about, you know, their three rep max or their rate of force development or what their eccentric utilization ratio is or how many carbs they consumed on a Tuesday. They talk about, oh, they were a tough son of a bitch. You know, and what is that? And that, that then becomes like the understanding of psychology from a from a cultural and colloquial point of view of what are these words and characteristics that shape, you know, that human's experience and approach to sport. So, like, you're, you're right, because when we think about it, if we think about, like, some fantastic athletes like Michael Jordan, for example, everybody talks about, like, you know, his work ethic or, you know, Kobe Bryant or somebody like that. It's all about their, their work ethic. And, and, you know, work ethic, is, you know, some people might argue that it's a genetic thing, but a lot of people say it's, it's very, very much a psychological thing. You know, some people are just able to put in the work a lot more. Um, you work as a sports psychologist with, with, great, uh, with GB athletics, with GB weightlifting. You work with the English Institute of Sport. Like just for anybody who doesn't know, and like I'm including myself in, in, in that demographic, what exactly do you do? What is your role as a sports psychologist? How how do you help these athletes perform? So, essentially, a sports psychologist helps people think better and behave better. Uh, uh, you can work at a behavioural level, a cognitive level, or a philosophical or values level. 
Now, what that looks like is if somebody's got uh, competition anxiety or if it's a mental health issue, like social anxiety, which I'm not trained to treat, by the way, because I'm a sports psychologist, um, the, the person at a, at a situational level would say, right, I'm going to avoid all the situations that cause me the anxiety, the competitions or the performances, right, or the particular moves or events that they don't like or the exercises they don't like. That will be a situational change. Uh, and that will be a, an avoidance thing. The other aspect you can do then is the behavioral, where you teach them some behavioral skills like breathing techniques, like approaches uh, and pre-performance routines, things like that, that give them behavioral skills so that they then change their experience of the situation. However, that doesn't always work because if you teach them a behavioral skill, it still doesn't mean that something isn't going to go horribly wrong or they're not going to have a bad experience. Um, and then if you move up to the cognitive level, um, that's you know the top end of things where you're saying like, just because you're having a bad experience just because this performance isn't going well does that mean that the, the next event the next competition or the next you know 40 seconds of your race isn't going to go brilliant that will be like a cognitive reframe and then the top end level is a philosophical change where it's like if I run the most terrible race ever can I actually cope with that and deal with that and that's more, more like stoicism so the big thing in there is like the ability to reframe. So a reframe is making somebody think of something differently. Now, Richie, when's the last time you kissed your girlfriend? Jesus Christ, you put me on the spot. Uh, this morning. <laughs> right. So when you kissed your girlfriend, and, and everybody listened to this is thinking, right, okay, so uh, you kiss people and you know, think of the big movie kiss and all this sort of stuff, right? I'm going to reframe that for you now. All right. A reframe for that would, would be, do you know whenever you kiss your girlfriend, what you're actually doing is creating a tube all the way from your butthole right up through your mouth down into her butthole. So it's one big continuous tube. So really, like kissing could just be called tubing. And uh, like next time you kiss your girlfriend, you're going to go and kiss her and think it's all romantic. And you're going to get this flash of, shit, I'm tubing my girlfriend. And that's, that's a good example of a reframe um, because you're going to think differently about kissing your girlfriend. Hopefully that doesn't ruin your relationship, Richie. I can promise you I'm going to do everything I can to forget this conversation ever happened. <laughs> right. Thanks for that. Yeah, but no, I, like, I, 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 I get it. That was a significant change in, like it's the exact same thing, but it's a very, very significant different way of looking at what it is um, and it is also a fantastic way or, or, or a way that no one should ever describe kissing ever again um, you're, you're messed up man but anyway go on the, the, the point in psychology is to be able to leave a lasting impact on somebody so you can actually change how you think that has left a lasting impact if I was to go and do a reframe for performance right I could simply say like what is, what is long-term Richie want to achieve versus what is short-term Richie want to achieve? Because short-term Richie might want Ben and Jerry's or long-term Richie might want abs. You know, two, two different things. And again, it's like, uh, whose who's action are you taking part of now? Is it the long-term Richie or the short-term Richie? And that's a good reframe. Another reframe that's, that's useful for behavior change, I find, is if... I get you to write down all the things that you blame your girlfriend for, or, well, we're not picking your girlfriend anymore. Write down, write down, in fact, if you wrote down all the things 
that you blame, uh, pick, pick somebody, right? Pick somebody at the moment. My parents. Right. Write down all the things you blame your parents for. This is everybody listening. So uh, <laughs> basically what you do is you write them all down and then you draw a line beside it and then you write down how you can take responsibility. Because your parents are outside your control. You're not a dictator. You're not in charge of them. You have no control over them. They can be complete assholes or lovely people, but you have complete control, not complete, most of the control over yourself. And that's where you can take responsibility. And that's a reframe. Some bullshit psychologist or, or have a go person will say, focus on the controllables. But everyone's heard that. That's, you know, that's not reframing anything. That's not evoking a change in thought pattern in somebody. That's just telling them what to do. And you can't tell somebody what to do. You can only trick them into things by asking them questions that cause them to shift in their perception. If you tell them what to do, you're just another dictator. And, and people don't like that because if I tell you what to do, the only way you can express your freedom is by actually revolting against that. And you know this because last time I went for an Indian, an Indian said, came in and said, here's the hot plate, don't touch it, it's hot. You probably touched it because he told you not to. That's called psychological reactance. But... Sorry, I've gone off on a Richie. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's a really like, interesting point because I think with it, when we think of coaches, traditionally we think, uh, or, or we think of nutritionists, um, and I, I want to keep this in, in the health scientist kind of sphere, um, we think of individuals who traditionally is thought they, they tell us what to do. So a coach will tell you, go out, like, <laughs> I'm going to go back to, to my, my very brief GA career. It's like, go out and run five laps, you know, start of every training session. Or, you know, like a nutritionist might say, um, okay, I only want you to eat chicken breast and rice or something like that. Um, and again, this is something that we're being, being told to do. But what you're saying is just being told to do something or giving given an instruction isn't enough. So so what if, if getting an instruction to do something isn't enough, what is it from a psychological level that we're looking for to bring about a change in somebody's behavior. Okay, so what I mentioned before, this four levels of change the situation, NFL players, they have a, a bubble of entourage around them. They never have to adapt and grow because they've got so much money. Then after that bubble disappears, when they retire, they don't know how to cope in the world. So you can change the situation to adapt your performance. Um, and external people can control and make that situation more favorable. But if you want to create behavior change in somebody, you essentially want to ask them questions and, and understand their motivations for behavior change. So if you tell them what to do, they, they won't know, or they probably know that that's what they should do, but they don't know why they're not doing that behavior already. Like most people know roughly what they are doing wrong you know, it's pretty easy in the nutrition to know what you're doing wrong. And yeah, okay, nutritionists do need a lot of knowledge, but most of the clients know about 90% of the changes they need to make. And what a nutritionist is actually doing is psychology. So you would ask them what, what the changes they need to make is and, and why they haven't made that so far and why that's not important. And what they're going to do is give reasons for change. And that's going to increase their motivation for the change because whenever they're vocalizing their their change, that's causing them to actually sort out their thinking and organize their thoughts. 
because you probably didn't realize this, but you've got about 70,000 thoughts in your head, and they come in, like, some of them are just like farts, you know, they just come in there and they're shit thoughts, and you don't have any control over it, but you have a lot of control over your voice and your ability to speak, um, you know, in, in the most part, you say things that you think, and when you think, you put it in order, and that gives it more structure and substance. So the therapy, the talking aspect of it, creates sense within the human, and unders, unders clarifies understanding, which supports behavior change. But this is why things like motivational interviewing are very powerful, because those questions I asked are straight out of motivational interviewing, and they're, they're useful for creating change. If I go one level further, motivational interviewing gets you motivated, but then actually uh, the change is psychological potentially where you've got the cognitive, the think, thinking, your fat, feelings, actions, thoughts. So thoughts is cognitive, actions are behavior, and feelings is affective would be in the CBT model, your emotions, your mood. So those three things affect how you behave, they all affect each other. If I change one, then you'll, uh, you'll have a, what's the word? A change in your behavior or an ability to change your behavior and and then off the back of that like you know there's planning aspects as well that you would tie in on top of a cbt so what are you going to do next time you're challenged to maintain your your new behavior that you found so new motivation that you to change somebody's motivational levels cbt or rbt that i'm training to uh, create a psychological profile for a plan for changing their their behavior um yeah, I, I don't know. How, how does that sit with you? No, no, no that, that kind of gives me a, a good idea of like just the importance of how how much these kind of behavioral change techniques are, are for changing somebody's behavior, be it in uh, nutrition coaching or be it in coaching a sport or something like that. Well, what, what we kind of want to talk about today and what I want to get kind of get from you uh, is I want us to talk a little bit first about the, let's say, the upsurge in the amount and the use of psychological techniques because you know you've mentioned motiva- motivational interviewing you've mentioned CBT already um, so those are two and they're all and I'm almost going to say they're almost like buzzwords nowadays in the world of nutrition at least because uh, people are using them continuously um, it's like oh you know you, you need to use this CBT technique you need to use this motivational inter- interviewing technique to get results so to to one extent we can say okay it's fantastic because these techniques from psych, uh, from psychology are getting more attention um, people are beginning to realize their importance but what are your feelings as a psychologist what are your feelings towards this upsurge is it a positive or is it a negative or are there aspects of both in, in involved I think it's good go on. <laughs> I think it's not good. So you think it's both? I think it's not good enough. Ah. No. This is the thing, because motivational interviewing is a therapy that is evidence-based, is very powerful, is used um, in alcohol and drug addiction and gambling addiction to create behavior change in really difficult situations. CBT, well evidence-based as well, um, you know, Loads, loads of evidence out there supporting the use of CBT and REBT and other things like ACT as well. Um, these therapies are evidence-based. But the thing is, that's like saying, you know, 
reducing your calories is evidence-based, right? If you reduce your calories, um, you're going to reduce your, your body fat, or you're going to have an impact on your training, say. But the thing is, like, that's just one technique. So ACT or MI or CBT or IBT is one technique, but it takes you to have trained knowledge in other techniques that allow you to uh, make a more skilled decision as to what suits that client or what suits that person's needs. And I think part of the issue is that I, I, I teach people motivational interviewing because it's a relatively low-risk way to great behavior change. However, if you use it without the right philosophy or intent or spirit, what you do is you create a problem because you can have somebody use it for, for evil, say, right? And an example would be, uh, no, I can't use that example. You might not be too, too happy with me. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, David Nolan knows what I did to one of his clients uh, in relation to his actions around his, uh, yeah, I'll stop. Anyway, uh, <laughs> basically the thing is, if you don't have a philosophy of how you understand the world, then that's well-reasoned and structured and also supported by other people, uh, other psychologists who've like, picked that apart for you, you might then accidentally or deliberately use your power for evil. Um, so, for example, um, if I used an MI technique, like creating discrepancy of why you want to change and why you not want to change, I know how to get somebody, ask the question, to get somebody's uh, sort of more level of motivation to change. And then I ask them, what, you know, so can I ask you what your values are? Like, name me one of your values, Richie. One of my values, um, honesty. Okay. So what I could say is then, Richie, like, why, why did you not tell... Uh, why, do, why do you not tell people what you really think of them? You know, you, you clearly hold back and, and you don't always give that 100% honesty. So like, why, why are you only honest when it suits your own needs? Because like, I'm sure there's people out there, there's probably people on this call like David Nolan or Lee Bell that you don't like. And that, that you know, you should tell them what you think of them. Um, so why not be honest um, in that scenario if that's your value? Um, to not hurt their feelings. Oh, so, so their feelings are more important than their honesty? Depends on the situation. Oh, so you, you don't have any hard and fast values that you stick to? I guess they're, they can be fluid. Okay, so you just change to suit your own needs? I guess so. Right, so what I'm doing, I'm ripping apart your entire value structure and... I can do that to manipulate you, but I don't want to. Like, that's not how you. That's not how you. Um, that's not what you want to do from an ethical perspective. You want to ensure that you've got the client's best needs, um, and that's why being a trained trained in psychology um, or trained in the therapies properly allows you to develop that value structure. But I know that the things that you might come up against, like how do you deal with something when somebody discloses self harm because you've built a good and trusting relationship with them. But it just disclosed self harm, like that. That is something that the average person isn't maybe fit to deal with, or doesn't know how to cope with that. Um, so, not point again. Again, you want somebody who's properly trained and knows how to deal with scenarios like that and how to prop up. Um, so again, that's that's another aspect of it. So dealing with the severities of things and making sure that the therapy suits the actual client as well or the client's need. Some therapies are contraindicated. Um, for example, mindfulness uh, is contraindicated with eating disorders. 
in the sense that that actually might make somebody who's got anorexia or worse. So, you know, people run around and say, be mindful, practice mindfulness. Might be the wrong thing if you're an overly anxious person already. Maybe actually just focus on what you're doing and enjoy the moment of, you know, the physical activity and not be too worried about where your head is because that could actually make you worse. So, so that, that's actually something that I, I, I kind of, I really want to talk about because mindfulness is, is one of those, um, I, I don't even know if, if we can classify it as a psychological technique, but mindfulness, it, it is something that has become incredibly um, widely spoken about uh, these days. And it is spoken about a, almost in terms that it is, it is completely benign. And to be honest, a lot of these psychological process, uh, psychological methods that you're talking about, like so again, CBT and and MI, they're all spoken about like that they they are completely um, false free, that they are purely they can be used or they can have purely positive effects. But what you're saying or what you said in the past couple of minutes is that there can be negative effects, and one of those is in that, like you know, for example, you're you're tearing apart my my value structure. Um, and you're beginning to, to get me to doubt myself entirely. You seriously were. Um, that's one thing that you can, do, you can do or somebody can do if they want to be malicious or if somebody uses one of these techniques incorrectly. Another thing that you said then is um, if somebody uh, finds out something about somebody else through use of these techniques, what are they going to do with it? And if they're, if they're untrained, they may not know how to, how to deal with that. So that's a possible negative effect. So can we talk a little bit more about, you know, just how detrimental some of these effects can be? Like, so you mentioned uh, the use of, of uh, mindfulness in the treatment of eating disorders. And I was wondering, could you could go into that a little bit more? Because it does seem to be that when people are dealing with issues around food, mindfulness comes up a lot. And I think if it's not something that's entirely benign, I'd like to. I'd like to hear more about it, and I think other people would like to hear about why it's not entirely benign. So uh, I'm not a mindfulness expert, and actually, we interviewed uh, Joe Mannion on the Eighty Percent Mental podcast, and that episode's going to be coming out shortly um, on mindfulness. He's done his PhD in it, and that was an eye-opening experience for me. And one of the things we discussed is like, what is trained in mindfulness? Like, how does somebody train in that? How does somebody know? what that is. So like, if you think of it again as calorie deficit, right? Calorie deficit is extremely powerful. It works. It can be too powerful. You get an eating disorder, right? You create a, a cycle of, I count the numbers, I get the direction of change I want. So strong medicine is also strong poison. And that's what the, where the therapist needs to be careful. Oh, or the nutritionist, they need to be able to think, what's the downsides of this interaction? Now, from a mindfulness point of view, who can actually tell me what it means? That's the big thing. The, the way that you know you get your, your random person in a bikini or your guy with a six-pack talking about mindfulness and doing some yoga or whatever, is yoga mindfulness? You know, is looking out in the beach and Instagram mindfulness? No, that's not. Mindfulness is about awareness of, of where your thoughts are and what that, that's causing. But like, I'm not trained in delivering mindful interventions, and I stay away from that. I actually do prefer like, progressive muscular relaxation because it's simpler and a bit less, a bit less. Um, it's a bit more, what's the word, 
physically effective in getting somebody to relax and then chill out because there's a physical feeling to it more so than just a cognitive feeling. Um, and the idea that someone's how does how does that person operationalize mindfulness? So some people operationalize or create my, mindfulness as a maybe a, a negative way would be being positive all the time. This reminds me of a blog I read where somebody said my mom got cancer because she wasn't positive. She said she didn't want cancer. She should have said she had a positive thing. She wanted to be healthy. You know, she should be mindful of her thoughts. And that's like blaming your thoughts. You're blaming your mom's thoughts for her getting cancer. Like that stuff is sick and twisted. But that's the kind of um, poor logic and poor thinking that somebody might have who's training people in mindfulness. So be positive, think positive, mindful thoughts. You know, don't be negative. Negative thoughts are awesome. Negative thoughts like mean you're not going to get mugged because you're a little bit scared of walking down that alleyway. Negative thoughts mean you're prepared for the worst case scenario. You know, negative thoughts, you know, allow you to perform better because you can plan them for setbacks. So and there's a lot of research to support this. So the gurus that promote mindfulness often aren't fully trained, don't have uh, any underpinning in psychology and can't translate uh, research from the, from the research of the literature into applied practice. And that's the thing is, can you translate it into applied practice and be aware of the potential downsides? Like, for example, with eating disorders, where somebody's overly anxious, overly focused on their thoughts about eating, they then end up creating more anxiety when they do mindfulness because of them thinking about the eating, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's messy. And I think that's the thing is, Chances are, if they've got an Instagram account and, and they talk about positivity, you should stay far away from them because, you know, it's not life's not about being positive. Life's about the full range of emotions, and you've adapted to have all of them. Like, you know, that's that's my view anyway. I don't, I don't know, Richie. I'm talking crap here. What do you think? No, no, like, I, I am now going to be very, very cautious anytime I use the word mindful or anytime I use the word positive when I do a post in the future and your name is going to, uh, to pop up in my mind every time I do it. Um, but Actually, I, I was going to say, my name's going to pop up next time you tube your girlfriend as well, but we'll... <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, just for anybody who's listening to this on the on the podcast and who, who's not watching this right now, uh, we are getting like some live feedback on this. Uh, we were talking about tubing earlier. Um, if you don't know what tubing is, you're going to have to go back earlier into the into the podcast. To listen, but we also had a comment here from uh, our mutual friend Dave Nolan who said, "Richie, don't let him in your head," and uh, I'm terrified that you're already having to get in there. You. Um, and I, I don't want to uh, get out please. Um so so that was that was mindfulness in in the context of eating disorders. Potentially not a good technique, not benign, not something that's like ah sure I'll use a bit of mindfulness it'll do no harm because that's I think that's the big uh the 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 the, the way people think about it. What are what other techniques or what other techniques are there with contraindications for different conditions? So Goal setting is actually one. Uh, I mean, I, I, the thing is, if something is, is has the ability to change your behavior, you should consider that 
uh, it may change your behavior for, for the wrong way. Um, and that's actually, oh, that's a great point. There's contraindications to every therapy that's generally prescribed, especially from non-qualified practitioners. Whoever said that should be on here. That's, that's it in a nutshell. That is a very good comment. But the, the thing is that, you know, goal setting, for example, let's look at that. Goal setting is very powerful. Um, it creates about an effect size of around 21% on average up to 38%. Um, but the thing is, if you set the wrong goal, you then, you know, you get this thing called attentional blindness where you focus on one thing, you tunnel vision, and then you don't see the other things that are going on. And this is catastrophes. This is how the stock market cracks. This is how, uh, again, people might over-focus on uh, all the the other aspects of Sam Marie Kennedy, of course it is, yeah. Um, so uh, basically, all the aspects that uh, you would, where am I going? I've lost the track, right? All the aspects of goal set. If you focus on the wrong thing, you mean you lose out on all the other things that might be going on. So the financial uh, stock market crash of 2008, the housing crash occurred because they focused solely on the numbers of what the turnover was in, in mortgages and not actually on the quality of the land, which is part of the, the solution to selling something. Again, this has happened within sport where you get people focusing on maybe uh, on a rehab process and they focus more on the rehab exercises than maybe on some of the other aspects of the rehab, like the psychological aspects. Because people get biased, and to focus on things with numbers because numbers provide a false sense of certainty and, and it's not really an understanding of the quality aspect of it. So, hello, Hannah. Hannah's recently been, been on the 80% Mental podcast as well. Yeah, see, she's just joined. Um, I work with Hannah in athletics, so I hope she's not going to scold me tomorrow. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so what, what else is contraindicated? I think, you know, CBT is probably going to be contraindicated as well with practitioners who aren't qualified because, again, they could be creating changes there that aren't actually beneficial and, you know, you're not measuring the changes that would occur across the time span of working with the client. Um, I mean, there's actually cases of people using NLP, which is completely discredited. It's an absolute sham. To try and cure. Just, just I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. Just before we do, could you tell us a little bit what is NLP and why why is it famous at the moment? So or why NLP, did it become famous? NLP is like sexually transmitted disease within psychology. <laughs> you know, it's it's basically something that um, people who don't understand psychology. Uh, have been trained up and used and don't think critically about and there's a very low barrier to entry to become an, an NLP practitioner. You essentially do a weekend course, you do another one and then you can teach the course. And you think about like in four days, have you ever learned anything of, of, of such value and such worthwhile? And the thing is like it's a marketing model of I create some sort of metaphysical, magical woo-woo and then sell that and then sell the ability to teach it. And the model then becomes, how many people can I get to teach uh, the business models? How many people can I teach this magical thing that they don't know how to disprove um, as, as, a, as a marketing scheme? You know, that's the, the model is teaching people it and telling people it's good and not using it. And then also you see bits where they take elements from other aspects of the ecology and incorporate that. So like 
a recent post like I was going to talk about is a woman who uh, is using NLP and neuroplasticity to cure infertility. And it's like neuroplasticity is just very simply the myelination of your, your nerves. That's it. It's myelination of your nerves and synapses uh, forming together when you do something. And when you do it repeatedly, it gets stronger. That's it. It doesn't cure infertility. It won't make you fly. Neuroplasticity is just a technical sign of word. So to go back to the NLP and why it's bad, there's a big meta-analysis by Wachowski in 2010 um, on, it's called 35 Years of Research in NLP. Um, and it goes through basically why it's a complete sham of a therapy. And it's because if you put it up against a randomized control trial, most of the results uh, are not positive. Uh, and, you know, it's not about one paper. It's about what all the papers say. Because the same way you flip a coin 10 times, if you flip it 10 times you get it to land heads, that doesn't mean that all coins land heads 10 times in a row. That's why we can't trust one paper. We have to look at the meta-analysis. We have to ensure we use proper study design, etc. Um, go ahead. Sorry, one last thing. I, I'm curious with that. You, you mentioned NLP, somebody saying that it can cure infertility. So one thing that I see with, and this happens in make a claim about a certain there'll be a nutrient or a food or a diet or whatever and they'll say it will do uh, x food will do y and what they what people who usually do this are really really good at is coming up with some sort of a pseudo scientific reason for how x causes y and to anybody who's you know like you know if they're not a nutritionist it may sound you know, perfectly reasonable. It's like, oh, he's used a lot of really, really fancy words there. That must be what happens. But oftentimes it's not the case. So I'm just wondering in the case of that infertility NLP case, did they come up with some sort of a pseudoscientific explanation for it? No, they just, it was, it was some woman called Susan who basically selling big science words, telling people mindset stuff and using anecdotes Anecdotes is not, plural of anecdotes is not data. You know, just because you've got five anecdotes is not data. Data is, we do a falsifiable hypothesis and conduct research. That's what, that's what you need to prove something works. So like falsifiability is massively important. And I think this is the other thing is like the chimp paradox. I spoke with Steve Peters at one of his conferences uh, or one of his talks and I asked him three questions. And he actually said during it, I said, what do you do if you've got one tool, this chimp paradox? And he's actually a, a trained psychiatrist. Like, he should know better. But um, he, he's he got the chimp paradox. And I said to him, if you teach all your, your chimpettes, the people who work for you, about this uh, chimp paradox and how to work with people, when does it not work? Because nothing works all the time. You know, I'm not perfect all the time. I have a failure rate. Everybody who does any job has a failure rate, right? So what does it? What do you do when it doesn't work and in what scenarios is it contraindicated for and does it not work? And he said it works all the time and if it doesn't work with somebody, I don't work with them. Hmm. So it's like, you know, horoscopes or palm reading or, you know, it works because you believe in it and that, or it works because you, you attribute something to it. That's not uh, useful. Lastly, just on that, Richie, um, the metaphors that people use to communicate, 
um, actually can shape your reasoning. There's research by Thibodeau in 2011, um, how metaphors shape reasoning. And essentially, if I tell you that crime is a virus or crime is a beast, and when I tell you it's a virus, you're more likely to create a scenario whereby you uh, will treat the, the underlying causes of crime. Whereas if I tell you crime is a beast, as a headline in a, in a newspaper, as a metaphor, you'd be more likely to be, have harsh penalties for the criminals. So this is what Stephen's paper talks about, the reasoning aspects and other aspects within how metaphors shape reasoning. So if you think about your existence as a human, as a homo naran, because you understand stories, the reason you do things, why you're Irish, why you're a nutritionist, because you tell yourself this grand story, a metaphor is another story, and that shapes our belief and actions. So when you've got this um, unqualified person telling people metaphors and, and using big words like neuroplasticity, they're essentially shaping the person's beliefs and actions with poor or no evidence base uh, behind whatever it is they're doing. So it's important to be critical about these things. Sorry, Richie, I got it around there. No, 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 um, it, it, it's a good rant, and you know that I've gone off on rants, like, similar rants myself in the past as well, um, because there's enough crap in the industry to, to warrant it. Um, and, you know, we, we need somebody speaking up um, about it. Uh, like, just for people in general, if, if they wanted to, to look more into what is considered, let's say, genuine psychology, and they wanted to, or if they're working with somebody and they want to know if this person is is using, you know, genuinely, you know, evidence-based techniques. Is there any way that they can do that? Is there any way that they can know whether something, ha you know, is evidence-based or is likely to, to have some backing or scientific backing to it? So that's, that's, that's very tricky. Um, within the South of Ireland, uh, psychology, sports psychology isn't properly regulated. I would say, and similarly, like CBT isn't properly regulated either, um, as, as far as I'm aware. So, in, within England, there's there's two bodies uh, within the UK. Um, there's two bodies that sort of govern practice, and that BCAP, B B A C A P, uh, which is British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy, and and those two organisations um, essentially control the practice of of therapy uh, and psychology. Um, so what you'll find is that in England they're on the HCPC register. I think it's Coru in Ireland, uh, clinical psychologist on the Coru register. I think I might be pronouncing that wrong. But you want to make sure that somebody's properly accredited and they've done an accreditation process um, to become trained before you sort of trust what they say. Um, somebody who's read four books and done a weekend course, it's not going to cut it. Even somebody who's done a master's, again, if they haven't gone through the training process, uh, it, it's not going to be useful. It could actually still be dangerous. Um, so the, the training process needs to be there. But very simply, you can ask them a couple of good questions, which is where's the evidence for this? And is there any, you know, any randomized controls trials to this? And then... What usually upends a bad psychologist or a bad therapist is what are the contraindications to this? Because if somebody doesn't understand the contraindications or the downsides, that means that they haven't thought well enough about it. You know, everything I do has a downside, and if I can't identify it, then I'm that's negligent practice. Because you know, 
and working with risks that I'm not, not aware of there and I haven't thought about it. So if you can't identify the downsides about the practice or the risks, then there's a big issue. I think from that point of view, um, the I think from that point of view, the uh, downsides aspect of it will, will sort of let you know if somebody doesn't know what they're on about. And again, that will tell you because if there's some charlatan that's fully trained in, in something that is a, a way uh, of believing or NLP or something like that, um, they, they won't think badly, they won't have the intellect to think badly or the, the cognitive processes to think badly of the downsides because they're selling something. So where does the money go? It Does the money go to uh, them? Do I have a vested interest in it? Is again another way that you sort of start trying to understand um, whether or not somebody's got bad practice. So the the last thing that I would say now is like, so where's the evidence? What's the downside of the costs of this, the risks of it? And, and then what are the other options? Because like, as a psychologist, you're trained to provide other options, like we talked about, situational, behavioral, cognitive, or philosophical change. You know, you have to be able to provide other options. Um, so I see uh, Anne-Marie Kennedy's put in about the Sport Ireland, Ireland Institute, accredited in sports psychology. That's interesting. I had to tell the Sport Ireland Institute that they shouldn't be using Mary Briggs and promoting that to coaches, and that's why I handed back my accreditation so I don't, the standard's so low, it's, it's pointless. Um, so apologies, Irish Institute of Sport. Um, um, you, any questions on that? What are your thoughts? I think one, one thing that kind of came from that is that a, a certain amount of, uh, and you, you, you'll excuse my choice of words for this, psychological agnosticism is probably the best... Which- Thing to look for in in a practitioner, um, you know, uh, like when we were speaking about this earlier, you mentioned that if somebody has is an expert in a certain technique, like you said, um, CBT for example, and you say CBT is a hammer, everybody's going to look like a nail. Um, and I, I find the same happens again in nutrition that you will have people who believe in you know one cure, one diet to cure them all or whatever. And I, I I find that you know we need to be very very agnostic when it comes to the approaches and the strategies that we use and we have to tailor them to the individual based on our knowledge and experience as practitioners. Um, and I'm just thinking that, like, am I, am I generalizing too much to, to generalize this to psychology as well? So I think, I think you're, you're, you're on the money there. So uh, a clinical psychologist will be trained in a number of different therapies. A sports psychologist um, needs to have, within the UK, needs to have uh, at least two different therapies evidence within their training within the training process, they'll probably pick up, most people I know pick up different therapies as they go along, on top of their, um, the rest of their training that they've already done, so they'll continue to grow that portfolio. Um, I like what you said there about agnosticism, psychological agnosticism. Like, if somebody can say, look, um, you, if somebody says that this therapy won't, um, won't solve things all the time and there's different ways of approaching it you're in a good place you know um, I think yeah that would be that would be good advice you know mm, I, I think um, and uh, Anne-Marie Kennedy has said, said it again there you need a toolbox of therapies to fit the individual and, and I think that, that's absolutely spot on um, a, a good coach a good nutritionist a good psychologist will have a an extensive toolbox 
and will know how to use each of them well and when to use them appropriately. And will have experience under supervision of developing that. That's another thing about, you know, if you're accredited through uh, BACAP, um, you know, you go through a process of actually uh, supervision. Like, I'm trained in MI. I've gone through a massive process of supervision um, and testing to get to the point of being able to deliver the courses in MI. Um, same with RIBT. I've, I've gone through lots of supervision within that to become competent in it. Um, it's it's a long process. It's not a weekend thing. So is there supervision? Is there evidence of supervision in the person's training um, that extends beyond two years or a year? You know. No, that sounds like like a, a few good key points to look out for for when somebody is looking to work with a psychologist. Um, like you, this this is an expansive conversation in that like we could go off in many many different directions talking about this and like you know you and i have have already spoken um quite extensively about like psychology and your thoughts about it in general um but i i think you know just for for the sake of time we can't don't we can't talk about a huge amount uh more but i would like and first off i want to say it to everybody i think you know if you're not following you already you should be um like from the first time that we spoke together here, uh, I, I remember that my, my initial thoughts were, um, he, this guy's a smart cookie. And, and, I, and I remember thinking that distinctively. Um, and, and I highly recommend people to follow Hugh and check out his uh, fantastic podcast as well, uh, 80% Mental. Um, because I think the whole area of psychology is fascinating. And I think people can stand to benefit from learning a lot more and learning about what you know, real psychologists talk about as opposed to some of the other kind of, let's say, the other ways that we're exposed to psychology as nutritionists or sports coaches whatsoever. Um, if, if people want to follow you, Hugh, what are some of the best ways to do it? How, are, how can people get in touch with you? How can people learn a little bit more about you? Um, you can just go straight to EPM podcast on Twitter and my Twitter handles in that um, or on Twitter, I'm Hugh J. Gilmore, I think that's my name. Um, and there's or on Instagram uh, it's Hugh John Gilmore um, but I've got a, a link tree um, in my bio and in that there's a list of all the previous podcasts I've done a link to 80% Mental uh, webpage and also a link to a course uh, that I'm currently uh, holding uh, just quick plug for that uh, I'm doing a course on harnessing communication for performance enhancement and it's essentially uh, the theory aspect uh, of behaviour change of MI uh, also tied in with other aspects of uh, communication and performance enhancement that I've picked up over the years into kind of like something for beginners to understand how to communicate better because ultimately that's, that's a big thing but yeah um, I, I try to avoid social media like the plague I only post stuff if it's uh, 80% mental or actually I'm coming on to your podcast Richie to troll all the people who are on it because I do enjoy <laughs> Um, but no, it's serious. Like, I'm not one of these people to to. It's going to be posting every day. So if you do want to follow, uh, I'll just be redirecting you to the podcast um, or to my courses. I'm not not big in the socials and sharing things unless it's that stuff. And that's it, really. Um, and I, I'll include all those links in the show notes of this episode as well. So anybody, you can just check those out and you go directly to Hugh's stuff. And like I said, I highly recommend if you are interested in psychology. 
please, please, please check out what he's putting out. And the podcast is excellent. How many episodes in are you? Because it's quite recent. We are now up to episode eight, I believe. And we have the first two episodes are already at, we've released one every week for the past eight weeks. And the first two episodes are already at 1,200 listens. And uh, in total, I think it's up over 6,000 maybe now. So uh, um, also, um, we are very close to getting, uh, uh, well, no, I'm not saying that yet. There's a few accrediting bodies that are going to be uh, doing reviews and endorsing of the show as well. So, you know, it's good. That's fantastic. Um, and again, like, as we mentioned, getting accreditation is important. There's a reason it exists, um, and it's there to make sure that, you know, the the quality of content that's being provided is is up to standard. So um, it's great to hear that, you know, you're going to be putting out something like that. Um, and, um, yeah, Hugh, I, um, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you tonight. Um, I think we're going to have to talk about, like, um, I, I, I have to say everybody, I really enjoy my, my, my phone calls with you because, like, he, he always gets me thinking. You've got me thinking tonight. Um, and, unfortunately, I'm probably going to think about you the next time I kiss my girlfriend. Uh, I hate you for that forever. Um, and if you can come up with a, an appropriate psychological technique to help me um, scrub that from my memory, I would greatly appreciate that. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Um, but uh, Hugh, absolute pleasure, and uh, I'll be looking forward to chatting with you again in the future. Okay, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. It's been an honour to uh, join the, the ranks of your guests because uh, I have to say you do have some amazing guests on, and you also do have uh, a really good way of, of interviewing people. So thank you very much. And also keep up uh, for anybody who's listening, I'm going to share this on my site and my socials. So anybody who's listening to me and you're not following Richie, please do follow him. And uh, just listen to him and, and we'll find out how he gets on when he goes back to tubing his girlfriend. <laughs> on that note, good night. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.